But it is certainly an exciting day for us here at Sovereign Grace Church, for us of Sovereign Grace. We certainly have much to be grateful for this day and much to be joyful of. I am certainly grateful for this new space where we could, where we can assemble um, for this time and this place being ours. We've paid for it. It's done. I personally did not expect that this year would be the year that the Lord would move us and to bring us into our own space. In my own heart, I was very resistant and fearful. And yet the Lord was very kind to me through our other elders to rebuke me and to lead me in this. They, didn't, they don't know they did, but they did. And to calm us and to move us forward, I'm very grateful for seeing the Lord's hand in all of this. As we progress through this year and as we all begin to experience the new challenges that we're all facing through COVID, it kind of became very apparent that we needed to do something. And we needed to make a move. We needed a space and a place that would be, that would be ours and also would give us a presence in our community every day. Of course, I don't want to understate this. The Lord has led the way, and we certainly can see his provision for us. It was a very quick move. <laughs> for me, it was a very quick move. Two weeks ago, we were still trying to think if this was the right thing, a week and a half ago, we were walking in here going, look at all the stickers we got to peel off the ground. And these guys were learning drywall. And here we are this morning together. We're very grateful. I'm very grateful for those who poured many hours into preparing this place and, and, and the support that we have gained through all of y'all over this summer as we walked through some challenging times. And we, we didn't skip a beat. You all participated. You leaned in. You sweated together. We of all people know that this place is just a building. In fact, it looks more like a house. It can be gone tomorrow, but the church of Jesus Christ will always endure. The church is the people that Christ has called out. It's not a place. The place is only where we meet. However, how good it is for us to see and to recognize that the Lord has provided richly for us in these days. And he has certainly answered our prayers. So exciting to be a part of this work. I'm, I'm grateful to be striving in this glorious task of, the, of working in part the, a part of the kingdom of God, doing ministry and serving with you together. And this morning, it's also exciting that we get to start a new sermon series this morning. We are now going to be moving back into the Old Testament. Last, uh, last week, we finished up the Gospel of Luke, and this week we will be starting a new sermon series to, uh, for the present time being on Ezra and Nehemiah. 
It is a two-for-one special. Uh, both of these book, his books historically go back together. In fact, it wasn't until I think it was about the fourth century uh, when Ezra and Nehemiah were still one book until about the fourth century. They were still put together and they were meant to be read together. They go together like but you're right. So first, we're going to look at Ezra, and then we will turn to Nehemiah over, uh, I think it'll, that'll be next year, to be honest with you, uh, but it, it'll come, it'll come. Uh, so uh, a, a trend, however, uh, in, in the church that, that, at least for me, it seems started around the 90s, and, 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 but it still trends are cyclical, they come back, they come, they, they move uh, around in history, and in this particular trend, um, for me at least, started around in the 90s um, for the church as it began to consider ways to rebrand itself or to become cooler and to become uh, hipper or to be more in touch with people's lives. Now, uh, Bill will probably say, no, I think that was taking place in the 60s during the Jesus movement, and actually that just came on my mind when I, when I thought about that, but I didn't live then, so... And not very many of y'all either were alive then either. So it was still happening, but like I said, it's cyclical, right? It's still, it's still always moving. So the church was, was working to be more in touch with people's lives, meeting the felt needs of the people who come to those churches, and to meet the felt needs of the community. And, and that began to have a, a shifting result in the church where structures began to change, Physical properties began to change and how they were designed and what they would look like. Uh, staffs began to look differently. All of a sudden, you began to have new staff positions and services began to change how services were done. Conferences sprung up. Preaching even changed. Discipleship and how discipleship is done changed. Lots of things change. Uh, for example of that, um, you all know that in many churches, these family life centers began to sprout up all over different communities as if that was like the measure of we're the cool ones, you should come here because we play basketball or we do something else with this place, right? Big youth groups were promoted and, and big church Christ, uh, children's ministry, lots of games and, and media and, and bands were brought in to lead uh, corporate Worship and media was used, and, and videos began to drive the illustration points for, for sermons and, and, and began to drive the themes of, of whatever the church is moving into for that particular season. Preaching turned into 20-minute pep talks on being a better person. The question that began to be asked, though, especially by young, rebellious people like me, was what happened? A very influential book came out of, out of Saddleback Church in California called The Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren. And, and it came out, and pastors began to devour this book. And, and it was an in, instant hit. I mean, it was, I mean, it was like number one bestseller kind of stuff. It was, it, it, pastors were devouring it. Big churches and small churches were devouring it because what pastor doesn't want a large, successful, seemingly easy church, especially like one that's in Southern Cali? 
purpose-driven model was adopted by many churches across the country and maybe even the world. I, I read this book in, in college, and, and, and all the, the model logically kind of made sense of, yeah, this is how you could promote church and become a big church and attract other people, the, the seeker-sensitive people. But I wondered, I, I wondered, is this really the model and the means by which the church is to do ministry? Is it even biblical? Good intentions, we could read in it, I can tell. The pastor loved his flock, he loved this, his people, and many pastors, of course, they love their churches, they love their flock, they want the best. But my question was, have the pastors really read this and asked themselves the question, is it really biblical to use culture? to use media, to use essentially whatever you can get your hands on by whatever means necessary. And it has had grave effects on churches. Physically, financially, it put churches in tremendous debt. People seemingly were being reached on the outside, but on the inside there was very little transformation. The statistics of divorce continued. The statistics of dropout rates in the church continued. The statistics of baptisms continued to decline. The church is in need of renewal. The, the problem of what was, be, was believed back then was that the church needed to be changed. That it needed to be redesigned. The church doesn't need recreating or rethinking, but a renewal. A renewal back to the word of God. A renewal to biblical orthodoxy. The message of the book of Ezra, brothers and sisters, is a message of renewal. It's a message of renewal that would call us as the church to be renewed in the word of God. Let's look to chapter 1 of Ezra, and we're going to read the whole thing. The whole thing. Wait till next week. We're going to do all of chapter 2. It's only a smooth 70 verses. All kinds of great names for me to mispronounce. But you won't know. Verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let every survivor in whomever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up 
the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God has stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about, about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of the midriff and the treasurer, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the priest of Judah. And this, the number of them, 30 basins of gold, thousand basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. There's a lot here, and there's a lot that leads up to this point, so we're going to jump right in. So just for, for uh, the, the sake of understanding, Ezra starts out around uh, 538 B.C. The whole book itself of Ezra extends for about a century, almost to, to 433 B.C., the first six chapters of Ezra cover the new exodus back to Jerusalem, led by their governor, Zerubbabel, who is probably Sheshbazzar that we read in chapter 1, and the priest, Jeshua. Ezra, the man, he doesn't even come on the scene till like chapter 7. So we'll see him in like November. And he goes back to the land then with Nehemiah. Now, if you're not familiar with Old Testament history, that's okay. Before 538 B.C. and King Cyrus and before the Persians, before his decree for God's people to go back in the land, Israel was in exile. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem completely fell to the Babylonians. That is the southern kingdom of of Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom, made up of all the others, was 721 B.C. by the Assyrians. In 539, which is very close to where we see the start of this book in 538, in 539 B.C., the Persians moved in and conquered the Babylonians. And that's under King Cyrus. Now, there is, actually. It's one of the questions... I'll be on the screen. They're always a test afterwards. Uh, but why, then, why would God let his people, whom he has put his name and his favor on, be conquered by such a wicked nation like Babylon and to be brought into exile? Why, would, why is this even part of the story? Simply put, they disobeyed the word of the Lord. They neglected the Lord. They wanted to be more like the nations than following the one who has set them free. Through the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, 
and others, God had warned his people to repent over and over and over again, or else, or else they would be crushed and they would be banished and removed uh, from the land and brought into exile, essentially to become slaves again by another nation. They were warned over and over again, and they continually failed miserably over and over and over again. And God banished them from the land as God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. He banished, banished his people, and they were taken into captivity as he said they would. However, as all of this was going on, when judgment was being poured out on his people, when Israel's worst nightmare was happening, the prophets, who were also prophesying about the judgment that was coming, were also prophesying that God would free them as he already freed them previously from Egypt. He would save them again and bring them out of banishment and bring them back to the land. God kept his word that he would judge his people, and he did. But when we get to Ezra, we see God once again keeping his word. And here, Ezra, here is Israel, a collapsed people, separated, spread apart throughout Babylon, who've been in exile for over 70 years. It was not a good time for the prophet, or for Israel. But the prophet the prophets told how the Lord would renew his people and would bring them out of exile like a new exodus. And that brings us to our first point this morning. Our passage shows us the providential hand of God and that God's providential hand is the decisive hand in all of history. You know, throughout human history, one of the ongoing questions that we humans ask one another is, why do things happen the way they do? A question I'm sure is being asked quite a bit these days. Why is there a pandemic? Why is there so much social unrest? Why is there anarchy and distrust and anger and disunity? Why do I feel so vulnerable even in public? Why are there storms and earthquakes and volcanoes and tornadoes? Why are there accidents? Why do things happen the way they do? I'm sure we could sit around a table at lunch and we can discuss all the various reasons of why things happen the way they happen. And we may agree on those whys and we may not. Just as we may agree on the solutions or not. But can you imagine that this is the very question that the exiles found themselves asking? How did we find our place here? How did we get here? Well, one simple answer, and every, this would be the Captain Obvious answer, was because a bigger army came and conquered us. They squashed us. I mean, by the numbers, we were weak, we were vulnerable, and we were squashed. And that's true. But what about now? When King Cyrus says, you can go back to the land. In fact, I'm sending you back to the land. Why now? Why do things happen the way that they happen? Well, again, we can 
look at the history of, this, of the book and even, even history itself, and we can say, well, Cyrus, the Persian king, he, he decreed it, right? He, he decreed it. He was the most powerful person in, in all of the world. He decreed it, that they should return and rebuild their city, and that's what they were going to do, and, and that's absolutely true. As you know, in 1879, there was an amazing discovery, archaeological discovery, where they found this thing called the, the Cyrus Cylinder, and in, in written in the Babylonian language and found in the area of Babylon where there was the temple to the god of Marduk, the false god of Marduk, and, and on it there was text that referenced to the, this, this was the policy of the king. That's what the whole thing was about. It was, it was saying that this is what he does. If, if, if you are non-Babylonian and you worship non-Babylonian deities, then I will respect your deities and respect you, in a sense, and send you back to your land so that you can rebuild your temples. And he would ask, because it's part of the cylinder as well, it would say, and so that they would go back and pray for him. So we can admire we can admire how benevolent and how progressive and how enlightened and kind he was in dealing with God's people and with the Jews. Life was far better under his rule than any other of the kings. It was quite amazing that here is a foreign king allowing the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. To go back to do what? To rebuild it. To rebuild their temple. And, and he gives them back and to take back all of their precious artifacts to go with them. Now let's not get confused into believing that favor from a government leader means that he is a believer. Or that he believed in the God of Israel. No. He believed and worshipped the God, the false God of Marduk. And probably his respect of all of these different gods was to curry favor as a good syncretist would. Meaning, I want to believe in all the religions and believe as many as I can to cover all my bases. And he was also a good, he was a good leader. Make people happy. That's the easiest way to control them. Give them what they need. Give them what they want. Give them a little bit of freedom. And yet, yes, it was Cyrus who made the decree. But what does our passage tell us that's going on beneath that? But from a far greater and more important view, this was most certainly, brothers and sisters, the Lord's doing. I like um, one of Thomas Akempis's quotes, and he says this. He says, man proposes, but God disposes. God has determined. Look at verse 1 again. It says, In the first year, Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled, that the word by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord did what? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made the proclamation throughout the kingdom. Did you, did you hear that? This was, this was God's doing. This is what, this is what God did. At, at no point, even in being conquered, in being in exile, did God ever lose control or abandon his people. In the first exodus, what did God do 
with Pharaoh's heart. He hardened it. And he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that over and over and over, God would flex the muscles of his power that the world would see the power of God and for centuries would see the mighty hand of God. And that's just the flexing of his muscles. In Deuteronomy, God also hardened the spirit of the king Heshbon. Even King Nebuchadnezzar himself, whom God used to judge his people, his own spirit was hardened so that he was brought low so that his own glory as the king would be taken from him. And here in Ezra 1.1, God is doing the same thing just in a different way. He's stirring him. Proverbs 21.1, are you familiar with Proverbs 21.1? You are once we read it. A king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hands. He directs it wherever he chooses. The 1689 London Baptist Confession says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeable all things whatsoever comes to pass, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. You see, every event and every circumstance is the outcome of the sovereign rule of God. Even over pagan kings, even over dictators, tyrannical empires, and constitutional republics, God is sovereign. It was the Lord who stirred Cyrus, that pagan secular king, to release God's people. And even unknown to Cyrus, it was God who moved him to march across the world and to conquer the Babylonians to make the path ready. Isaiah 45.1 shows us that. This is God's providence. How reassuring then it must have been for the exiles to know that God had not forgotten them, nor were they beyond his sovereign hand. Even in darkest of times, when, when we are most broken and we are the most scattered and lonely, the Lord is sovereign. And his hand, his sovereign hand, is still over our rulers and our politicians and over every aspect of our war, world. God has a plan. And not even Cyrus, Pharaoh, or kings could overrule it. In fact, they become part of it. Rather, it is the hand of God. Are you worried these days? Are you worried about recent, long-term political developments? Are you worried about the election? Are you worried about the social breakdown and upheaval? Are you worried? Fill in the blank. Do you believe, then, Proverbs 21.1? Do you see that the word of God 
is showing us that the whole world is God's stage in his theater. From bad guys to enemies of the gospel and the kingdom of God, those who deny the scriptures, those who love what God hates and hates what God loves. No, no matter what earthly power they may have, they are still characters on God's stage. He will have his way in all things. But again, brothers and sisters, we still obey what Paul told us to do, to pray. To, to pray for our leaders and to pray for them that they would do things that are favorable for the kingdom of God, to promote the gospel, to bring peace, to do what God has put them in place to do, to bring about human flourishing and safety and peace so that we can live in peace. And the reason why we pray for our leaders, brothers and sisters, is because we believe that they are still like streams of water in the Lord's hands. Yes, things might get worse for us, yet we still know that according to God's word, he is in control. He is sovereign. And his providential hand will always care for us according to his will and for his glory and for our joy. The next thing that we see in this passage, because God is holy and because he is righteous and because all he says is right and all that he says is it, and does is, is good, because he is sovereign, then we can trust in his unfailing promises. I'm going to show you some of those promises that we see fulfilled in this, in this passage this morning. But isn't it interesting that just a very couple weeks ago, just a couple weeks ago, in Luke chapter 24, we see Jesus himself opening up the Old Testament where we are this morning. I don't know if he was in Ezra or not. Probably. It would be cool if he was. Right? He opened up the Old Testament, and what is he doing? He's showing, see, God fulfilled his promise. See, God fulfilled his promise. See, God fulfilled his promise. Here I am. He fulfilled all of this promise to bring salvation and the forgiveness of sin and the promise of the Holy Spirit is coming, boys. Because God fulfills his promises. And the promises that we see in Ezra being filled are only promises that are, that are pointing directly at Jesus Christ. They're pointing directly at him so that as we see his promises fulfilled this morning in the text, we would see them fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. And that would flood our hearts with joy in an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, heavenly father. Now, even though, again, it was Cyrus who made the decree, it was God who led, who stirred his heart. And yet, from the Lord's point of view, what was God doing? He was fulfilling his promises that he made. In verse 1, it says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now, that may not make makes too much sense if we're not too familiar with Jeremiah 21. But if you look at your cross-references in your Bible, if you have that, it's going to point you to two passages. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. And Jeremiah 29, verse 10. I didn't say verse 11. I said verse 10. 
Jeremiah 29.10. And I'm going to read that one. For thus says the Lord, verse Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29.10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. Before the fall of the southern kingdom, here is Jeremiah through the Holy Spirit prophesying that this is how long you will be in exile. Now, the exile began to happen actually in 605. They've been yanking people out of Israel since 605 B.C., and the fall was in 586. So the point of here in Ezra 1.1 in this, in this verse is exactly what the exiles who were going to be returning to the land needed to hear. I mean, he gives them the book and all, where to go look. They needed to hear and they needed to see God fulfilling his promise to them that he was going to return them to his land. And isn't that exactly what Jesus was showing us in Luke 24? Look at the word of God. Look at the scriptures. And why? Because you can trust in the word of God and you can trust in his promises. This promise of the new exodus, of the exiles, that is a huge promise that God kept. But this promise is actually part of a larger promise. I told you it pointed you to something even bigger. A larger promise that includes us, brothers and sisters. It's a promise that began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That in the first gospel... That in the first gospel, we see here, even right after the fall, in God declaring the curse over the world and over his creation, we see God's determination to bring about salvation for his sinful people. You see, all of human history, all of Israel's history, is pointing to how God is designed to accomplish his purposes for bringing about the salvation of his people. It was to show us that there would be one mediator who would come. There would show us that there would be one sacrifice that would be required and necessary and sufficient. You know, the story... The story of, of humanity doesn't end after the fall. The story of Israel doesn't end after they become enslaved to Egypt, does it? Or when they become in exile in Babylon. But the story continues to the cross. And now from the cross, and this ongoing theme throughout the Bible that God will save his people and he will redeem his people. God has not forgotten his promises to save his people. His faithfulness has not wavered, but his faithfulness will be our fuel, the fuel necessary for, for these exiles to go back into the land, to the, the, to the land and the homes that they have forgotten. 
And brothers and sisters, it is God's faithfulness to his promise, to his promises, that is also, also our fuel for our present faithfulness and obedience to his word and a holy life. So not only do we see God's providence and his sovereign hand, we see the fulfillment of his promises, but also for the rest of the chapter, we see how God makes a way. We see how God provides for his people. Cyrus makes the decree that starts in verse 2, but look at verse 4. Looking at verse 4, it reminds us of what happened after Pharaoh, at the very end, finally said, leave, get out of here. We, we see almost the same thing happening in Persia that happened in Egypt. In Egypt, the Lord told his people that they would have such favor in the sight of the Egyptians that when they left, they can virtually take whatever they wanted. That they could plunder it all. They can take all the gold and all the silver and all the clothing and all the food that they could take and that they needed. And that's exactly what we see here. We see how God is providentially providing for his people, not only for the journey, but also for the rebuilding. Isn't it interesting that Moses built the tabernacle with Egyptian gold? Solomon built the temple with what David had plundered. And now Zerubbabel will build the temple again with gold and silver from the nations. And that's the point. And that points us, excuse me, that points us also to how Jesus took captivity captive. And he distributed his gifts as he built the temple of the Holy Spirit in his people, establishing the church as he's equipping his people for the work of the ministry. Look at verse 5 in Ezra 1. It says, Then rose the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests of the Levites, everyone whose spirit God has stirred to go. Again, God's sovereign hand to even stir his own people to go and to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Verse 6, And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold and goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Again, just like the Exodus previously, this is a, a, a new Exodus. He is richly providing once again for his people as they leave now Babylon back to the land. Verse 7 to me is just amazing. Because here is a secular pagan king giving back all the things that was plundered from the temple when it was destroyed. And, and just a side note, just for those who care, there's one thing that they didn't get back. The Ark of the Covenant. And there's good biblical theological implications of that. We're not going to get into that this morning. God always provides according to his will, even when it seems most impossible. 
Again, think of their, their circumstances. They're nobodies. They're conquered. On the verge of possibly losing even their own identity as a people. This is impossible. I mean, it is, to me, it just seems so inconceivable, impossible, that a pagan king would let them go back into Jerusalem. It's impossible that, that they could gain enough supplies and goods for free to not only make the journey and survive, it's impossible that they could even come up with enough supplies as well to rebuild the temple with any kind of splendor that the Lord deserves. And they're going back to a place where they have no homes, nothing of, them, of their own. And yet, see how the Lord provided the impossible. Isn't it right then for us in some way this morning to, to look at our very own lives and even look at the very fact of where we are this morning, that the Lord makes the impossible happen. And I don't mean this in a prosperity gospel way. That's garbage. Because these people were not going back into a land where things were going to be easy. I mean it in the way that a sovereign God, who is our heavenly Father, who has broke the impossible chains of sin and death, and now there is a way through Jesus Christ. He has provided, brothers and sisters, the impossible. He has provided for his people according to his will. You know, the text goes on from there and starts listing out the different things that was, that was given, back to, given back to them and to whom it was given. What are we to make of that? Does God really care about pots and pans? Does true religion and Christianity really have anything to do with these things? Well, the answer is, is, is yes. Because these weren't just pots and pans from Walmart. They were vessels used in the temple, instruments used in the worship of a holy God. And therefore, these things were considered holy. They were small symbols, just pots and pans and, and vessels and forks and knives. But they were very small reminders of God's covenant dealings with his people. And so you better believe they counted every single one of them. The return of these things was a sign to them of this, that God is faithful to his promises. And that God was restoring them and renewing, renewing them. If God is concerned about the exact numbers of basins and gold and silver and censers and bowls of gold and silver and a thousand other things, 5,400 things in total, then how much more does it say that he cares and he loves his people? Men and women in exile and men and women in the church, if he cares about pots and pans, and he cares about the sparrow, then how much more does he care 
for you and me. He has providentially in love fulfilled his promises to his people over and over again. We are once again the, gener- the next generation, the following generation of God's fulfilled promises of his church in this place. The gospel continues to work, continues its work of transformation. The Holy Spirit continues to transform lives. The gospel continues to be proclaimed. Beloved church, and I want you to hear that term, beloved. Not just by me and your elders and by one another, but beloved by Jesus Christ himself and by our heavenly Father. Oh, how richly the Lord has provided for us. Certainly, let us thank him for our, for our new digs. Let's thank him by, for him because it is by his own hand. But more importantly, over and over and over and over again, proclaim his excellency and be grateful and thankful for his son, Jesus Christ. And in the provision of the work of the gospel, he has made you a co-heir with Christ, a son who took out of exile and through the new great exodus of the work of the cross, he brought us out of slavery, from death, from feeling the wrath of God to now being heirs with Christ as being called sons of the King. And he's brought us into a family, a part of the kingdom, and into his stage, into his theater of his glory, to be a part of what he is doing here And he has provided beyond, beyond measure for us. So this this building, brothers and sisters, then it's just one of those gold bowls or silver censure or one of those things. It's just one of those. It's just the pointer, pointer to God. I point up because last week Jesus ascended, remember? (laughs) It's just a pointer to, to God, to Jesus, because he has provided his son for his glory and for our joy. As we close this morning, looking at Ezra 1, thinking about Ezra 1, going through Ezra 1, this is the beginning of a journey for this people. But even greater than the journey and the travel back to Babylon from Babylon, excuse me, to Jerusalem, there's a greater journey. Nothing would be easy for them if you're familiar with this book. And there's no promise of health and wealth and prosperity when they would get there. They have no homes, they have no temple, no walls of protection. But what is it that they do have? If they remember, it's the Lord. 
And that's what they are reminded of constantly. Because we have the Lord. But there's people coming against us. We have the Lord. The king changes his mind. We have the Lord. We have the Lord. We have the Lord. So what were they doing? They were stepping out on faith, weren't they? They were stepping out in faith to look to the Lord for each step with every obstacle, opponent, opposition. In faith, they must trust that God will lead them, that God will provide for them in each way, that God would care for them and that God would sustain them. Their goal was to get to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that was a good goal. It's what they were going to do and what they were going to have to do. The greater goal, though, is what? To trust in the Lord. To have their faith in the Lord. But what was God doing? God was drawing their hearts as he now draws us to something greater. To a greater city than a rubbled Jerusalem. Or to a greater temple that they would even build. As Abraham also looked forward, looked toward a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. This journey that they took, brothers and sisters, is not too far from our own as Christians. Are we too not to trust in the Lord? To have our faith in the Lord as it has been revealed to us in the scriptures of what that looks like? Are we not to rest in his providence and his sovereignty over all things and all circumstances and all rulers and authorities? Is our journey in this life not one of faith? A faith in Jesus Christ who has gone out before us. I close with this. Therefore, since we have been surrounded by so so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Literally, that's the trailblazing pioneer. He's gone before us, who for the joy that was set before us, or before him, excuse me, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, our faith isn't blind. Our faith is only trusting Jesus because he has gone before us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this new study for us. Lord, may you use it to open our hearts to see the glories of Christ and your goodness and your kindness. May it direct our hearts, Lord, as we maybe will repent or trust in you more, Lord. May it increase our faith. Father, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.